Hi, and welcome back, everybody. It's Monday. I'm Dennis Daly. You and I get together in the 3 p.m. hour every Monday, unless we have a preemption for sports. And this time around, a very special memory for me. Years ago, I got a phone call asking me if I wanted to be a travel writer and go to Malta. Well, I had heard about Malta. That's where the Knights of Malta were headquartered. And, of course, the movie The Maltese Falcon, which was made up. But uh, I said, sure. And then I looked on a map and said, where in God's name is Malta? It's three little islands in the middle of the Mediterranean, just south of Sicily. So, anyway, I went there. I found the people wonderful. They're a very mixed group of people sitting there in the middle of the Mediterranean, but all the tour guides and the educated people studied in London. So my private tour guide, Tessie Ajuse, had a very interesting accent. And she talked about the history of Malta long before the beautiful, impressive capital city of Valletta was even a dream. Before Valletta was built, the Knights settled in Birgu, which is just across where you see that old castle there. Mm -hmm. That's an old castle, a fort, built by the Arabs in the 9th century. So we're going back a thousand, aren't we? I think that the, the thing that people need to realize about Malta is because of its strategic location in the Mediterranean, mm -hmm. and the fact everything with sea traffic back then, anything that went back and forth through the Mediterranean passed by here. Yes. This is why, uh, this is why uh, the Maltese are so good at ship repair and shipbuilding. Because for, since Phoenician times, they have had to repair sails and uh, sailing boats and so on. So even now, for example, we've just had the Cunard, the one that crashed in the Suez, come in here for, for repairs. It's one of our... That is a large ship. Something else you uh, you need immediately here and before the day is over, I need to buy a pair of sunglasses. Yes, you do. You do, because the sun is really hot. Uh, actually, there's a very good shop in, in Republic Street. We can go there. So anyway, now, uh, starting with the breakwater, what you see down there is Fort Ricasoli, the first little peninsula is Fort Ricasoli. And then uh, comes uh, the next one. That is Biggie, or rather used to be Biggie Hospital. Uh, in the time of the Knights, it was built by one of the bailiffs whose name was uh, Biggie. And he built that palace for himself. It was later taken over by the British and turned into a naval hospital. As a matter of fact, you can see there's a lift at the side so that wounded sailors mm. from the ship the ship would berth alongside. They were taken straight on the lift up straight into the ward. Uh, this, as I told you, is the old fort. And beyond it is Birgu, where the knights first settled. They fought the great siege from there. And when they were victorious, they decided they would build an impenetrable city on this peninsula, which was called Mount Shibaras. And uh, then, of course, after the great siege, immediately after they started building Valletta. That is Senglia, which was built later by, by the knights. It was named after Grandmaster Le Sengle. Then come the docks. Then comes the Marsa. You know, architecturally, uh, I have obviously not been overseas before. This is, this is my first trip. Uh -huh. Much of what you see because of the light... Uh, pinkish, yellowish color uh -huh. is reminiscent of what I have seen of pictures of, of Rome. Of course, we're not that far from from Italy here. Oh, but, yes. but it's amazing how almost every inch of the peninsula, except for the streets, uh -huh. is so filled with the, with this sturdy stone type of architecture. Yes. The stone is local. It's Globigerina limestone, the island. We have uh, two main types of, of stone. It's either coralline limestone, which is a very hard stone, or this soft stone, which is Globigerina limestone. It's a sediment 
cemetery stone. Ah. I'll show you when we go to the quarries. I'll, I'll show you where it all comes from. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, so that is, gives it the, the, the color. When it's first quarried, it's white. Then it turns this sort of golden color. Looks as gorgeous at sunset. It does. Yes. It does. It fits in nicely with it. And as for the architecture, of course, it's all uh, contemporary with what the knights came from in the in the 16th century. It might be best at this point that we talk a little bit more about the role of the knights in the island nation of Malta. They were not just pillagers and soldiers who came to Malta, or they would not have left the heritage of splendid, magnificent cathedrals and churches and buildings. Tessia Juice continues her story and gives us a little bit more insight into just who the Knights of Malta were. Uh, they came from the noble families. The, the order of the Knights was a, no, was a noble. Apart from being a religious order, it also, uh, they all had to be of noble birth. So it so they came from all the noble families in Europe, Germany, Italy, and they brought the best with them. And mm. so this is why all these buildings have this sort of Baroque. Valletta, for example, is a Baroque city. Mm -hmm. All the buildings, the churches are in Baroque style. We're going underground to the catacombs of St. Paul. They were founded approximately about the 5th, 6th century. They were Christian, but that doesn't mean to say that they didn't allow the Jews to be buried, because even Jews were buried uh, down here. Now, the catacombs are here. Actually, they're not the only catacombs. This area is riddled with catacombs, even under the private houses, because uh, this is where the city walls used to end, and the Romans used to bury their dead beyond the city walls. We know when most people think of the word catacombs, they think of Rome, and they think of the place where Christianity was practiced in secret, in hiding. It was their only refuge. Yes. Actually, the, the, the catacombs were introduced by the Jews from Palestine when they went to Rome. Mm. One advantage we have here in these catacombs are these two round tables you, you see here. Mm -hmm. They are called agape tables. And... Um, you see them in Malta, but you don't find them in the catacombs in Rome, although you see them in paintings in Rome. What was the purpose of these tables? Well, now, uh, when someone used to die, they used to bring them down here after having anointed them and so on, washed them and anointed them, and they used to wait until the men dug the holes according to size, either in the wall or tombs. Now, there are three different types of tombs, which we speak about later. But after having buried the dead, they used to have a wake, Mm -hmm. and, and so they used to put the food on the round table and they used to lie Roman style once they had the meal. I should point out, because this is radio, it is a platform, uh, a round rock, uh, maybe four feet in diameter, but it doesn't sit up from the ground completely separated all around. There's a slope that yes. goes down uh, on about uh, three sides of it and that would be where people would recline? Yes, and the indentation in the center is so that the maid servant could reach the other side to hand her for the food. Everything with a purpose. Everything with a purpose, yes. So all of these carved niches we see here would have been burial places. Yes, especially the children. The children were, had little, little sort of holes dug in the walls. There was a high mortality rate amongst children, of course, in those days, and so they used to bring them down here and dig, little, dig the holes according to size, and then they used to be covered. Mind you, the catacombs didn't even look like this. Uh, they were plastered over. They were all covered in white. They even had frescoes mm. with emblems because some of the, the, the um, tombs used to belong not only to people who could afford to have their own, but also to guilds. If you were poor, you joined a guild. 
This week on American Montage, we're visiting Malta, we're underground, and our special guide is Tessie and Juice, showing us through the catacombs of St. Paul. You see, this is a saddle-backed canopied tomb, and when the Saracens came to Malta, um, they pillaged the tombs, and then they filled them in with soil. They wanted to eliminate this Christian attitude that they had, you see, and so they, they knew that they buried them, usually with a bit of jewellery and so on, uh, as this was just a temporary abode, you see, they thought at the time. So they, they tried. They didn't realise that the dead came in from that end, so they went to an awful lot of trouble breaking the rock here, when all they needed to do was chip the slab at the side, you see, the mortar around the slab. I see. I'll show you where they used to put them in from. Oh, okay. You see? So Certainly, it's just an opening as so, it would an oven almost. Yes, exactly. They would have a slab here that just was plastered. So once you had sort of chipped the plaster, the thing came out and the dead went in. Now, was there such a thing as a coffin or were the, the bodies just no, wrapped? the bodies were just wrapped. Anointed bodies, and wrapped and then placed yes. in, in the tomb. Yes, they were wrapped in linen cloths and with... Uh, Maybe a difficult thing to bring up, but what about decomposition and everything? I can't imagine it being a very pleasant place down here. But the funny thing is it never was smelly because for, this would be blocked. Okay. This would be blocked. And, and, and there was they used fairly strong anointing oils. They used fairly strong, strong anointing oils. And also uh, there seems to have been a ventilation. It's never hmm. stuffy down here. And cool, too. And cool, yes. Yeah. And in, in the, it's kind of morbid to say this, and, uh -huh. and, uh, but in, in modern-day morgues, they're refrigerated. So we, we have a situation that's not conducive to, uh, to terrible things happening. Yes, mm. that's true. Okay, do we make a U-turn, or can we, we get... We can go the other way, yes, but I mean, it all leads the same way eventually. I want to show you the other part, because in some, in some areas, there is different levels. It's not all on the same level. I'll show it to you. You know, if this were in the United States, they would uh, mm -hmm. use this for what we call Halloween. <laughs> yes. We're in the island nation of Malta, so close to Italy that during the war... They pounded the crap out of the capital city, Valletta. It was the most bombed city of all the Allied centers, and it was a ship repair place for the American Navy and the British. Okay, back to Malta after the break. Welcome back. Dennis Daly back into the archives for memories of a wonderful trip I took to Malta. And our tour guide, Jesse Adjus, has been taking us around Malta where all the buildings are made of stone and the history goes back thousands and thousands of years. She wanted to take me to the classic city of Emdina. There's no vowel in that first syllable. It's just M-D-I-N-A. It is a closed, walled city with a unique history of its own. It always was the capital city in olden days, going back to Phoenician times. We have found Phoenician remains in Imdina. Then in Roman times, there were Roman remains. When the knights came, it, it of course, was uh, already all built up. It's only that the knights found that this wasn't very convenient as they had a fleet. They wanted to keep an eye on the fleet and so they couldn't settle in the capital city, which they normally would have done. Tess, maybe this is a good time to, to stop here and, and spend a few minutes talking about the knights. I mean, we've, we've talked around it. You cannot go anywhere on Malta without seeing their influence, without mm -hmm. seeing the heritage. If you will, tell us basically when they arrived here and, and their origins, the, the, the fact that they were all uh, very well-educated uh, people with good upbringing. Yes, the, the, knights, the knights came to Malta in 1530 after they were chucked out of um, Rhodes, Cyprus, Jerusalem, Acre, and they were offered Malta. 
the knights came from all over Europe. It was an honor. It was considered an honor to belong to the order. It was usually the second son who was made to join the order uh, because as they were all of noble birth, the eldest son stayed behind to inherit the the name, the family name and so on, but the second one was pushed into this religious order. And originally, uh, if I understand, when they were setting up shop, as it were, more in the Middle East, they were uh, taking care of uh, pilgrims. Yes, yes, yes. They were originally Knights Hospitalers. This is what they were created for, what the order was created for. And so wherever they went, they had to, first of all, build a hospital, and they usually took care of the sick, the poor, and so on. Uh, it was only later that they had to develop fighting skills in order to defend themselves. As they were chucked out of so many places, they eventually learned they had a lot of experience in fighting. Hard to be a pacifist when people keep asking you to leave. Yes, exactly. If, if you would, again, put in perspective about in what era they arrived here, in calendar-wise. Well, they, ar they arrived here in 1530, and they, they left in 1798 when Napoleon took over Malta. So obviously in modern times they have a tremendous influence, not just time-wise, but the fact that uh, most of the buildings uh, and, and the great treasures that are here are the result of the knights having precisely. owned the islands. Yes, that is true. Yes, that's precisely so. Now we're here again, it's, it's Mdina. Uh, for the benefit of, of radio, we're looking at a, at a fortress with... Uh, uh, the beautiful golden sandstone that looks so gorgeous in the Mediterranean sun here. What are we going to see in sun? Well, inside we're going to see the buildings as they were when the knights uh, came uh, to Malta. Very little has changed. Very few houses have changed. As a matter of fact, you're not allowed to change the houses at all now. There's a law against it. Uh, so we should go in and I'll point them out as okay. we go along. Uh, for example, these uh, straight walls you see here uh, are the original walls that the Arabs built. That is the original gateway into Imdina. When uh, Manuel de Villena came to power, he wanted a palace in Imdina. But as I said, Imdina had already been built years before. So what he did was he purchased a house, demolished it, and rebuilt his own palace, which is enormous. And it was so large, it came right across the main entrance. No problem. He just blocked the main entrance and, and moved, moved it. moved the front door. <laughs> And so having, uh, having uh, of course, created this new gateway into Imdina, he proceeds to put his coat of arms, you see? Yes. The quartered coat of arms on the main gate. He had to rebuild the, the drawbridge and the whole mechanism for the drawbridge leading into the city. Now, on entering this uh, main gate, incidentally, these are said to be the original doors leading into the old city, what we come across is a tower. Now, the reason why this tower is here is that there are 13 other towers like this dotted along the coast and they were used as watchtowers to keep an eye out for the enemy approaching. What they did, they used to light bonfires on the roof and they used to get the message here in Nimdina as it's the highest spot in Malta. They could see these fires on the towers right around the island and they got the message that the enemy was approaching. It was important that they knew for the simple reason that they had to prepare mm -hmm. for an influx of people all rushing into the main city, which isn't all that large, you see. And so the people not only brought their children with them and their few possessions, but they also brought their animals. They brought their goats so that they could have fresh milk. They brought their chickens so that they had fresh eggs. In every city, there was always a reserve of wheat, grain in silos and water. You know, this is very reminiscent in a way 
of, of anyone who has to go to shelter, whether it be now in Israel or, uh, or, or that we hear about during the Blitz in London, where people knew where their shelter was and they, they took things with them and went there. Went there. And then, of course, uh, they could withstand several months like this. But, of course, when they ran short of water or grain, well, then they killed the goats and they ate them. They killed the, the chickens and they ate them. And then, that was, then they really were in dire straits after that. We are the guests of some of the warmest people on the planet, the citizens of Malta, that island nation that is just off the coast of Sicily, so close to Italy that it took the heaviest bombing of all during World War II. It is a fortified island nation and most famous, I guess, for the influence of the Knights. They were there for nearly 300 years, and the, the great concentration of beautiful churches and tapestry and paintings and gold and silver, largely because of the influence of the Knights. We're being taken around the country by a very knowledgeable lady, Tessia Juice, and I wanted to go back to one element of history, and that is what many people think of first when you mention Malta, and that was the shipwreck of St. Paul there. Well, when St. Paul was shipwrecked off the island of Malta in AD uh, 60, Malta was under Roman domination then, and the governor of Malta was named Publius. And it is said that this is the precise site where his house stood. And uh, Publius had a father who was ill of an incurable disease, this is a legend, and he sent for Paul to see if as a last resort he could do anything for his father. And he cured him, and it is said that Publius was converted to Catholicism. Later he was to become first bishop of Malta. So that is the story. Now, as for the cathedral itself, uh, it has been uh, rebuilt uh, several times, the last time after an earthquake in 1693. The titular painting at the back represents the conversion of St. Paul. There's a beautiful floating. Um, mm -hmm. There's a beautiful floating canopy. Yes. I had to look for a second to see what held it up uh, over the over the main altar. Yes, yes. It, it's incredibly ornate, and unlike the uh, the cathedral in Valletta, mm -hmm. uh, which has lost a lot of its gold leaf over mm -hmm. the years due to weather and uh, atmospheric conditions, this is still. Um, very much in pristine shape. Yes, because this is on higher ground. This is the reason why. The other one has no, obviously got no damp course, and so the damp is rising in the one letter. Um, the two pictures you see on either side of the main altar, they are St. Peter and St. Paul, and they are mosaics. They look like paintings. From this distance, very much so, yes. Uh, yes. yes. And another great set of organ pipes. <laughs> yes. You said you went to a wedding here recently. What yes. was what was that like? It must have been beautiful. Oh, it was quite uh, quite beautiful, quite impressive. Yes. Malta is a nation with a church for every day of the year. It wears its Christian and Catholic heritage splendidly. And if you ever want to go somewhere where you hear bells ringing all the time, it is indeed Malta. But there is another side to Malta, the pre-Christian, pre-Arab, pre-Roman part of Malta. There are ruins of temples that go back three and four thousand years before the birth of Christ. Some of the most splendid ancient ruins on the face of the earth are to be found in rural Malta, and many of them well-preserved because of the way they were constructed. These particular temples are, are constructed of coralline limestone. As you can see, the rock is very, very hard, so they couldn't really dress it. 
as they do, the, although the central passageway was always made of, built of Globage Arena limestone, because this is a softer stone, and so they could dress it, dress it down with obsidian, which is a natural gloss that came from the Lipari Islands. Well, now, before you go any further, you were talking about the age of this, uh, mm. some 5,000 or more years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it has always amazed me, whether it's here or Stonehenge, the immensity of these rocks, and we have no idea how they were moved. No, we still don't know. We do know, though, that they did create rollers, sort of ball bearings made out of the soft rock. I'll show them to you later on. And they used to push and heave these enormous stones on the rock. It was one of the highlights of my trip to Malta, a visit to a 5,000-year-old place of worship on the little island of Gozo. And it's funny, everybody there pronounces it Gozo, as if they're straining or something. We're going to go to Gozo. Why can't they just say Gozo? Okay. We'll learn more about the fantastic huge stones at the 5,000-year-old worship place after a break. Welcome back. We're on the island nation of Malta, smack dab in the middle of the Mediterranean. Our tour guide, a wonderful, funny woman, Tessie O'Use, and she was talking about the huge rocks, boulders that were used to construct a an altar, if you will, 5,000 years old. And she said they made big ball bearings to move them. When it came to lifting the stones up high, say six meters high, what they did is that we think, we think, we don't really know, we think, they created a ramp and then put the stone on the rollers and pushed them. They didn't lift, actually lift them up, but they actually heaved them and pushed them up. You can't help but wonder how many accidents and injuries there were. But of course, they, it was a dedication for them, much as the building of, of the great cathedrals of Christianity. Yes, of course. This, this was the main center of the village, hamlet, what have you. Um, architects reckon they must have taken at least 40 able men to move some of these stones. Do we know much about... Uh, the culture at that time, other than these remnants of temples? Yes, well, they did worship a deity whom we think was the goddess of fertility. Mm-hmm. At no time did they offer human sacrifices, because never in any of the temples have we found the, the remains, the bones of uh, human beings. But a lot of animal bones, starting, say, with pigeons, because these were offerings. So if you didn't, couldn't afford a, a big animal, you offered, say, a, a, a pair of doves. Uh, otherwise, you offered a, a pig or a cough. Now behind us, we're standing in, in what is essentially a, an oval, the somewhat flattened, and then if we walk through an area, we get to um, an oval that is larger. Uh, the walls are higher here. Do we know whether or not um, in the first temple area we went through that the walls would have also been that high there, or do we assume this being larger, it was just kind of the backdrop? No, no. Uh, we have found, fortunately, we have found a model a small model in one of the temples, uh, which gives us an idea of what the roof, or what the final shape of the temples was like, because they're all in this state of ruin, semi-ruin. Uh, we do know that the walls were corbelled, 
they came inwards to sort of try to form a dome. Mm-hmm. But, of course, with these stones, they couldn't form a dome. So when they got to a certain height, say six meters, they would have had tree trunks, wattle, oh. anything to keep the sun they would have gotten to the, the point where they would have fallen in they if they had, fallen, they had exactly. leaned forward much With an further. aperture this size yes. and with these uneven rocks, because usually they lock into each other in order to form a dome, mm-hmm. don't they? You couldn't rest these rocks in order to make them drop into each other. Tess, what about the discovery of all of this? Is, is, is the, 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 the archaeological discovery of these ruins fairly new to archaeology? Yes, maybe the farmers knew that something was there, but they never bothered. Uh, it was only uh, in the last century that this particular temple we are standing in was discovered. And then it took such a long time for the government to purchase the land it stood on that a hundred years went by. I would think, too, probably the occupation uh, or the, the British uh, here had a lot to do with that because they were very much into, into archaeology, the discovery of King Tut's tomb. Uh, they just seemed to be one of their disciplines. It was a local archaeologist who did it as a hobby. He was a doctor by profession, mm-hmm. Sir Temi Zamid, who actually did most of their fieldwork. So it took a while for the world archaeological community to realize the value. Oh, yes, now we have them coming all the time. <laughs> telling us what to do, what not to do. During a storm recently, the uh, big stones got loosened, and so they were afraid they would topple down on the people, so they're going to do something to strengthen them. But they don't really want to do too much, because otherwise they look as if they've been repaired. There's a large crowd in front of us, so I don't want to barge through here too much. No, but we'll have to wait here, otherwise the next group will come in. Okay, now we're in the, uh, the, the large one, and um, there seems to be at one end a much more uh, preserved something, almost looking like walk-in ovens in a way. Nobody really knows what it is, but the nearest thing they have come to is that it was where they kept the animals that they needed to sacrifice them, ah, you see. kind of stalls. Yes, the, the, the central stone isn't original. You see, the top one cracked over the years, and so they had to prop it up mm-hmm. with a, a stone. So that wasn't there originally, but the side ones were, the high ones were. And on this side, you can see a very well-preserved heart now, where they used to roast the, the animals. And over here used to stand a plint with a snake standing on its tail, which in some religions is a sign of fertility. Mm-hmm. That's to be found in the archaeology museum in uh, the citadel. Well, a very common carving on Mali is of the goddess of fertility from that era. Yes. Yes, that was found at the Tarshin temple. Who was a rather plump lady. Yes, we reverently call her the fat lady. <laughs> <laughs> not, not quite a beauty by modern day standards, I'm no, afraid. I shouldn't think so. Tess, this is incredible scenery here. The one thing I haven't asked you yet is what is it like to live here? On Gozo? On Malta in general. Oh, Malta in general. Well, it's pleasant enough. Life is slower. It's pleasant. You you spent a lot of years showing people such as myself around. You know where all the nooks and crannies are. Yes, that's true. That's true. But it's pleasant. Provided you get away once a year, as the island is so small. Um, provided you get away once a year, it's heavenly, I should say. Now, where do you go on vacation? Anywhere. Europe, Switzerland, England. Been to the States? Yes, once. Only once. <laughs> Where'd you go? Uh, went to the East Coast. New York, Boston, uh, West Virginia. Wheeling was the place. Wheeling, West Virginia, <laughs> yes. We, before going on the air, we had talked about some of the cities of the U.S. she'd seen. Yes, yes. Uh, talking about a steel. Uh, steel mills. Steel yeah. mills, yes, and so on. Yes, and then we went up the East Coast to Toronto. Now, is this the area from where our ferry will leave? Yes, this is Imjar, and it's the main harbor. And ferries ply backwards and forwards all the time, in the summer, even during the night. And the big old building at the top, beyond the harbour, is uh, Fort Chambray. It was built in the time of the knights. As a matter of fact, it's named after a knight 
who built it, Chambray. It's now going to be turned into a holiday complex, we are told. Well, Tess, this has been absolutely beautiful, and I want to thank you for taking me around and uh, showing me one of the prettiest places I think I've ever been. I'm glad you enjoyed it. What a fantastic week in Malta. Old, ancient, thrilling, beautiful, and a story of survival. I'm Dennis Daly. Don't forget my easy email address, bingo, B-I-N-G-O, at earthlink.net. On one of my several trips to London, I realized I had to use the bathroom. It happens to all of us. And I passed by what looked like an abandoned church, but there were people out front. So I got out of the car and ran into Marjorie Nicholson, a very, very interesting woman who said that the abandoned church was now being used for something wonderful. It was deconsecrated in 1972, and the reason for that, I mean, the original reason, was the fact that um, until the war, there was a clustering population, uh, you know, of hundreds of years' duration, almost up to the railings of the churchyard. With the war came extensive bombing, absolutely flattened all right about here. The um, fabric of this building didn't suffer at all, but all the windows were blown in. But of course it meant that the population was dispersed, and this meant a diminution in the um, congregation. And it struggled on and struggled on, and in 1972 it was closed. And 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 the the church commissioners who owned it um, left it, hoping to get an alternative use for something, you know, a library or something like that. All the suggestions that were put forward fell through, and there was a demolition order on it for the end of November 1976. And by that time, the roof had fallen in, the floor had fallen in, the whole place was about four inches thick under centuries of black soot and pollution. There was a hunting park called, which is now Kennington Park, which is just at the end of this road, at the end of Lambeth Road, and that was where the king hunted deer and so on. There was also a great deal of industry along the river in in boat building. But of course then it was little more than a village and the only great house was Lammouth Palace. And that that is just over the wall from where we're standing now. And that's the London home of the Archbishop of Canterbury. But this church which is now a museum is much older than the palace. The original church was built in 1062 by um, the Countess Goda, who was a sister of Edward the Confessor when he was building Westminster Abbey. And there have been about three churches on the site since, but never actually pulling the churches down and starting again. They've been added to over the centuries. And from medieval times, um, a lot of it has been left, the pillars in the building itself. Um, go down into the basis of the medieval pillars. So we know exactly the size, um, the dimensions of that medieval church. This may sound rather, sound rather naive to say this, but I think one of the things growing up in the States that it is easy to forget is that how new the American culture is in many ways compared to many cities here in Europe. That many of the things we would consider to be nearly ancient in the United States are nothing compared to what you'll find here on, in the UK and on the continent. That's absolutely true. When my husband and I went over for our first visit to America in 1983 to Virginia, this was a thing that struck us when we were taken around, particularly Williamsburg, and shown, you know, this dates back to 16-something and this is so ancient. And one thought, well, my goodness, you know, of course it is ancient to you, naturally. But there's um, there's such a wonderful link here 
just where we're standing, because that tomb over there is um, the tomb where the whole family of Tredescant is buried. And the younger John Tredescant, because there were two, father and son, and the younger John Tredescant um, went three times to America, plant hunting. Um, the first time he went was 1622, and then 1634, and then he went a third time and um, brought back so many of the things that you actually see in this garden today from your country. Hmm. Rosemary, let's get to the, the very heart of the matter, and this is where I feel bad sometimes that it's radio and not, not television. What is the fascination with the country garden, whether it be uh, photos of Versailles or some of the palaces or Callaway Gardens in, in the States? There, there is such a wonderful organized gentility about it. How far back does the tradition go, and what kind of comments do you get from people? <laughs> the it's thousand a questions, questions there, yeah. all rolled into one. Well, I think the thing is the um, the um, the the question of the of the importance of gardens. I mean, it goes right back to the earliest. Uh, as far as the monarchy goes back, they were always, as they were known, they're not so much as gardens, but as pleasances. What great fun in London with a woman with a marvelous accent. Of course, she thinks I'm the one who had the accent. Back after a break. Welcome back. Once while visiting London, I happened upon a woman named Rosemary Nicholson who had converted an old classic church in Lambeth into the Museum of the British Garden. Ha! What a wonderful place. Sounds funny when I say it, but she told me that British gardens had been a tradition in the United Kingdom for, well, as long as anyone can remember. The importance of gardens, yes, goes back very, very far. But there is an enormous resurgence now in this country and in your country uh, for uh, the old historic flowers. I think people are beginning or have begun over the last years to be terribly interested in the origins of the plants, how they came in, you know, how they came into this country or how they came into your country. When my husband and I were over there in 83, we went over to take part in a symposium in the Valentine Museum in Richmond mm -hmm. on that very subject, the exchange of plants across the sea from you to us and from us to you, and it was absolutely riveting. You know, I never thought about plants coming this direction. I can see very much that settlers who came from uh, the British Isles, who came from Europe to settle in America, yes. would have brought part of their culture with them, and that certainly would have been some plants and flowers. But I, I never stopped to think that there would be an attraction to bring them back this way, the ones that, of course, were not native here. Absolutely. Tremendous importance. I mean, the, that younger, both the Tredescans, but the younger one, who was the one who travelled furthest, going to America, um, he was absolutely fascinated in anything that was new, growing there. When we went, we were staying in Williamsburg, we were taken out to Jamestown to see the very place where the early settlers landed at Jamestown. And we were taken through woods, and there were growing sumac trees, Yucca, mm -hmm. all absolutely new to us. And there over there is a yucca, and we've got two... No, not there are two yuccas, there's a sumac tree over there. But you see, with us, it's just a shrub, that one over there, mm -hmm. where the gentleman in the green jacket is. And, of course, in your country, they're trees. The windows had all been vandalised and were boarded up, and the whole of this area was just the local rubbish tip. It was knee-high grass, no paths, of course. And um, you couldn't see 
the, the recumbent tombstones, and those two, that's the Tredescans over there, and this one's Bly of the Bounty and his wife, Admiral Bly of the captain Bounty. Captain Admiral now. Yes, well, he I'm was. I'm used to calling him Captain, Admiral, yes. But he was Captain, yes. Isn't um, it funny how the culture is? I picture Charles Lawton when you say that for some reason. Yes, from from the movie. No, I should not at all. Because <laughs> Charles Lawton depicted him as such a tyrant, and he wasn't like that at all. I mean, good naval discipline, but not a real tyrant. But those tombs, which, as you see, are quite substantial. You couldn't see them for nettles and brambles and ivy climbing all over them. And the, 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 what happened was that my husband and I, when we lived in the country, we had a lovely garden. And we'd all, but just as amateur gardeners, but we'd always been terribly interested and fascinated by plant hunters and what motivated them to go so far afield and bring back such treasure for our gardens and of all the plant hunters the Tredescans were the ones that interested us most and it was just to see the tomb that we came down here one Saturday afternoon from Chelsea where we live over the river and um, were ill prepared for what met our sight because here was this ruin and, uh, I mean, not only every sort of um, filth and rubbish and old bits of bicycle and car body and so on lying about. It, it must have just been a, a gut-wrenching experience for you when you finally got here. It was. It was. Well, actually, I said to my husband, because they were also homeless tramps and alcoholics lying about under bits of cardboard and carpet. And I said to my husband, I don't want to go any further. I don't want to see the Tredescans too. Let's get away as quickly as possible. And then you mentioned to me earlier about having seen the um, walkway. 1977. I, I should point out this is a, a, a walkway and it goes across the Thames uh, to the area where Parliament is and I just happened to notice that, that that restoration dates from 77. That's right. And we noticed that uh, we read that this was going to come about um, to recognise the Queen's Silver Jubilee in 1977 and it was especially to bring the hundreds of visitors due in London for that Silver Jubilee to this part of London, to bring them over La London and Lambeth Bridge, so that they, you know, could see a different part of London. But, but, but what you're saying is that what they would have seen would have certainly not been to anyone's benefit. This is absolutely... Would have misrepresented the city and been absolutely. very depressing. And we just thought, how could the powers that be think of spending quite a considerable amount of money on this walkway when the first thing they see when they cross Lambeth Bridge is that a appalling sight of this place. Anyway, we went on and at each other, you know, what a disgrace, how dreadful. And then we thought, well, what could we really do about it? And the only thing that presented itself to us was that we should write to the Times. Everyone writes the Times whenever they've got anything that they want to get off their chest. And we wrote and suggested that as a jubilee project, this place should be brought back into some use. And, the, uh, and we thought that it's wonderful. That letter would be printed. We'll have huge support coming in. But the letter wasn't printed, and we thought, well, that we tried at least. And then to our amazement, we had a letter from William Rees-Mogg, who's now Lord Rees-Mogg, who was then the editor of the Times. And he explained why he hadn't printed the letter, but he said, I'm very interested, and if you ever get anything off the ground regarding that place, I'll give it what help I can. So here we were, with the sort of might of the Times behind us. So we took a Xerox copy of the letter and sent it next door to the Archbishop because we couldn't think of anyone else to approach. It is his backyard. That's absolutely right. And he and, uh, asked whether two people could try and set about trying to save the place. And we had a kind, if rather gloomy, letter back from him saying that he thought it really had 
gone too far, that it was in, you know, too bad a state. But it wasn't he being misapproached, but the relevant committee of the church commissioners. And that was how it began. We went to see them. And we had an almighty fight, because, of course, they thought it had gone too far, too. And they also thought that two perfectly ordinary people, it wasn't as though we were a firm of architects or anything like that. Um, and they swore we'd never be able to do it. But we've managed it so far. I mentioned hedges. Um, I don't know what the exact pattern is. It's something that you might see repeated on a quilt, but it's fine lines of, of hedges. A garden. It, this is a what, knot garden. A knot garden. A knot. Very old. They date back to the Elizabethan times, that 16th century. And it really was um, this intricate design of... Um, as you would see on old book bindings and yes. that sort of thing, do you know? Oh, I mean, you mention a quilt. But um, more intricate, really, than, than, than that. A book binding sets it in proper perspective, I think. Yes, that's right. What is the reaction you get from visitors, particularly young children, uh, students who may come here? What, what kind oh, of feedback do you get? Absolutely fascinated. They absolutely fascinated. And we are inundated with um, requests from uh, school teachers saying, can they bring their classes of children? And the great difficulty is, it's all right as long as they bring them, and they bring staff to keep them under control but I mean you've seen the museum yes. there could be a lot of damage done you oh, know certainly. children rushing along with lawnmowers and things like that especially if they all just pick one flower <laughs> that's absolutely true about four years ago there was uh, a young youngish man walking around the museum and he was there for ages and mostly you know people come there perhaps spend an hour but this chap was there all day and in the end in the afternoon I said to him I'm so interested are you a botanist what is your special interest and he said oh I'm the director of Agecroft Hall in Richmond in Virginia and I had never heard of it and he said this was a house that was built in the 16th century i.e. 15 something up in Lancashire and um, even time mining went on underneath it so there was sub subsidence mm -hmm. and <coughs> um, uh, um, well you know a very very wealthy American took it over bodily brick by brick to this marvellous site just outside Richmond re-erected it and then they made it into a, a museum of that period, bringing in from all over the world, you know, Elizabethan cradles and all these sort of things. And it's quite beautiful. Not that I'd seen it then, but it was very interesting. And he said to me, what we are wanting to do is now to make a period garden of exactly that period. I'm so interested in everything being done here. Would you help us? And I said, yes, of course we would. We can't give you plants because of your restrictions. But I said, you, you know, anything you want to know and seeds and so on. So this went on for about four years. And the October before last, he wrote to me and he said, the garden, you know, it's looking wonderful. Will you come over and open it in May? And I thought, well, you know, people say those things, but it doesn't happen. But they did. They asked me over. And here's this gorgeous, beautiful house, and the garden is exquisite. And there's a big plaque up on the board, and it says, this garden, made, in, in, made to commemorate um, John Tredescant, who plant-hunted here in the 17th century, was made with the help of the Museum of Garden History in London. Rosemary, thank you. <laughs> Rosemary Nicholson, living proof of the fact that there are nice people around if you just walk in the right gate. I'm Dennis Dane. Join me again next Monday afternoon right here.